Hello, welcome to my new show, 50 Plus Aging in Rural Maine, a project of AARP Maine in cooperation with WERU-FM. My goal is to take a deep dive into some of the topics we all face as we age in our rural communities. I'm your host, Suzanne Carmichael, an AARP Maine volunteer. Today, we're discussing a view from Augusta, what this year's Maine legislature did for Mainers 50 and older. I'm pleased that my guests are AARP Maine's two advocacy and outreach directors, Japhet Ells and Bridget Quinn. Thank you both for joining me today. First, I'd like to set the stage for our listeners so they'll have a bit of background about this year's legislative session and AARP Maine's role in it. Uh, Japhet, let's start with how this year's legislative session was different from prior years, given the pandemic. What worked, what didn't, what were the differences? Uh, good question. And I think the first thing that comes to mind is it was socially distant. Um, like so much of our day-to-day uh, -day lives these days, uh, people were trying to keep their distance in as many ways as possible. Um, and I think, to be, to be honest, it was also a technological feat um, that the legislative session was continued able to go forward. Um, you know, prior to the session and the onset of the pandemic, things were going to move along as usual. And that means lots of folks in the state legislative buildings meeting in person, doing uh, the normal things that they did before the pandemic hit. But with the pandemic, there was a sudden need to allow not just legislators, but also uh, the public to engage in this process remotely and safely. And so there was a dramatic shift in the need for technological tools that allowed for people to connect. And so I think one of the things that we all owe is a big thank you to not just the legislators and the committee administrators, the clerks, a lot of the support staff that are often behind the scenes in all of this, uh, a huge thank you for pulling this off and being able to uh, allow session to go forward as needed during the pandemic. So people were able to testify at public hearings uh, and see working sessions and so forth remotely this time, whether they lived in South Berwick or Presque Isle, they didn't have to drive to Augusta to participate. Is that correct? That's right. And a lot of those folks were our members and our volunteers and advocates who uh, also sort of had to learn the technology as well if they wanted to participate. So I think everybody was sort of trying to get boned up on, you know, what sort of uh, software they needed and how could they participate in this legislative process now in this pandemic. Um, but it, it really, I think, showed the adaptability and the flexibility of our, uh, of our system and the folks that are helping create it. And now I think it's given us a roadmap for what the future might look like because so many people were able to engage in the legislative process uh, than before from all over the state of Maine. So if you're from Aroostook County, you didn't have to drive you know, three hours to get to Augusta to be in a legislative session. You could sit down at your kitchen table if you had that broadband connection and plug right in. Okay. Bridget, I'm interested in how AARP Maine sets its legislative priorities. There were over 1,700 bills submitted by legislators just for this year's session, and I think AARP maybe Maine followed about 40. How do you decide which bills to follow? What criteria do you use? Yeah, of course. So as you just said, Suzanne, that is a lot of bills. 
and there's we cannot do it all even with as many volunteers as we have we do have to prioritize so when looking at bills to follow and potentially support or oppose broadly speaking we search for policy that furthers aarp's vision which is to enhance the quality of life for all as we age and our public policy serves as the foundation for this work Policy that we support seeks to improve the lives of individuals and communities in a number of areas. Some of those examples include um, promoting better health for individuals and communities. Some examples of that include having access to affordable, high quality healthcare, prescription drugs, long-term services and supports, and eliminating health disparities. We also focus on promoting financial security to ensure people can enjoy economic security as they age and as well as creating livable communities. According to AARP, a livable community is a community where that feels safe and secure, offers choice in where to live and how to get around, and equitably serves all residents. So those are some of the policy areas that we work in. And to determine what's a top priority for our office, we listen to the feedback nationally and locally from the 50 plus population. That includes AARP members and anybody 50 plus. Um, our policy development truly emphasizes listening to our diverse membership and seeking input from many different channels from Mainers 50 plus and their families to learn what is top of mind for them. Right here in Maine, we do have staff as we're talking now who connect with Mainers 50 plus throughout the state through a number of ways, whether that is surveys, through our volunteers, social media, and even community events, which are all virtual right now due to COVID-19. And that allows our staff to hear back from Mainers directly on what is a top concern for them and their families. And then we use that feedback to create our policy agenda. Um, when looking at policy that we are gonna consider supporting or opposing, we want to ensure that it will have a positive and equitable impact for those 50 plus and their fam families. So those are the really big things that support our broader mission as an organization and things that must check off when we're supporting policy. Thank you, that was interesting. Uh, Jafet, what role did AARP Maine volunteers play during this year's legislative session? How did they help get a bill passed or defeated? Well, first off, I have to say our volunteers are the key cog in our advocacy and legislative agenda. Um, you know, when I first took this job with AARP here in Maine and did a lot of listening, um, we spoke to a lot of legislators about you know, how they interacted with the main public over the course of a legislative session and as a bill goes from the beginning to passage. And one of them said to me, you know, if I get a dozen emails and a few phone calls about any one bill, that constitutes a groundswell for me. And I had to sit down for a moment because to me, those numbers seem so low. And knowing that, you know, Maine has over 200,000 members across the state, it seemed like an easy opportunity for older Mainers and the concerns of the 50 plus to be brought front and center to legislators here in Augusta. And so volunteers has been a key part of our advocacy work and our goals really to bring in the people to the people's house in Augusta. And so the volunteers do all sorts of things from um, tracking legislation to engaging with committee work, so actually sitting in on committees um, listening to different testimonies for and against certain bills. Um, but the biggest thing that I think that what the volunteers did this past session was building relationships with legislators on key bills um, remotely. That was a whole new twist. So it's one thing to be in the halls of the state house 
uh, wearing our red shirts for AARP and talking to legislators. It's another whole thing to be able to do that and connect with legislators remotely, hosting Zoom meetings, um, being sort of the leader in their community to bring other folks into those conversations to make sure that legislators are being held accountable and that they have an opportunity to share with us their concerns and their top issues for the legislative session. Um, so those are just some of the things that, that volunteers have traditionally done with us. Uh, I will say sitting in on committee sessions can be boring, but as my grandfather always said, it's the boring stuff that's most important. <laughs> Why do they wear red shirts? So good question. Uh, we, when we started showing up at the state house um, for our Tuesdays at the state house uh, advocates meetings, uh, everyone started to wear the AARP red shirt. That was sort of the, the, the way to sort of bond everyone together and acknowledge. But what it became was a giant red flag in the state house so that everybody knew when it was Tuesday because the house was flooded with red AARP volunteers and volunteer shirts running around, talking to legislators, sitting in committee meetings, uh, being in the hallways and just being visible, uh, which again is, is you know half the battle. Showing up is half the battle. And we put you know, anywhere from 40 to 50 volunteers in the state house in this in the sessions um, every Tuesday, and it became known as Red Shirt Tuesday. Okay, I'd like to turn now to some of the specific bills that AARP Maine worked on this year. Uh, Jafet, I believe you were involved with something about working and saving. Can you explain what that was about and the results? Sure. So I think it's important to sort of set the context for why we work on financial security. Um, and I'm going to start with just a quick story, which is that when I was a kid, my mother gave me three jars on the countertop in the kitchen. First jar said spending money. Second jar said short-term savings. And the third jar said college. And all the money that I was able to earn, whether it was from babysitting or lawn mowing or just my allowance, which back then was $2 a week. Um, I would put into these jars and I had to break it apart accordingly. And what she was trying to do was to teach me the value of saving. Now, a lot of folks aren't able to save. We understand that. Um, but as my grandfather also would tell me, there's always a way to put a couple pennies away, right? No matter how much you're making, there's always a way to put something away. And right now, we know that more than 200,000 working Mainers in this state don't have the ability to automatically save through their jobs. So many of us, if we're lucky, we have a 401k or a 403b if you work for the nonprofit world. Uh, or maybe you're lucky enough to have a pension. Pensions are sort of going the way of the dodo bird these days. But um, those are the normal vehicles for being able to save for retirement. And it happens automatically. I don't have to worry about moving money around. I don't have to worry about taking a check here after my paycheck comes through and moving it over there to this account. It all happens automatically. And that's the beauty of it. You can set it and forget it. And hopefully over the course of many years and saving, you'll begin to develop a pretty big nest egg. Now, no one's getting rich on this. This is not the goal is to just put away millions all of a sudden and ride off into the sunset with your big bag of cash. The goal is to have an additional piece of financial security that goes with your social security to give you a little financial stability later in life. Well, those 200,000 Mainers don't have that ability right now. It's not as easy for them. And we know that savings rates have not changed over the last 40 to 50 years. So we can talk about education and trying to tell people to save more. It's not working. And the reason this has an impact on all of us 
is that it hurts our communities. We have more and more people who are heading into retirement and the only thing they have is a social security check. That is not the, the point of the program. It's not to be the sole uh, crutch to lean on um, in retirement. The goal was to have it married to a couple other, other savings devices. Uh, back then, often it was pensions, and nowadays it's now 401ks. Most folks don't have that ability. So this program that we developed is a beauty because it's a public-private partnership, and it would allow any working Mainer who is not offered a 401k or pension uh, through their job to start saving through their paycheck automatic, automatically. Now, the, the best part about this, I think, is that it, it doesn't put any pressure or undue harm or additional uh, asks on the employer or the business owner. Uh, it's very simple. Um, the, the, the business owner does not have to manage this money. They don't have to manage the process. They are not um, uh, a fiduciary in any, any way. All they have to do is acknowledge whether their employees would like to use this program. The goal, of course, is to start saving some money and allow folks to start saving some money through whatever job they work, even if they're seasonal. If they do certain things in the winter, and then in the summertime, they move to landscaping or whatever it might be, they can still save money automatically. And we know people would like to do this. We know that folks, even who are making you know, less than $50,000 a year, would like to be able to save more money for retirement. So this piece of legislation, we think, is not necessarily the silver bullet for making sure folks are more financially stable later in life, but it's a key uh, cornerstone to helping strengthen our communities and making sure that folks um, have what they need and that you know they aren't leaning entirely on taxpayer-funded programs like Social Security later in life. Do employers contribute money to this program? They do not. There is no mandate that the employer has to match or contribute any money. This is all the employee's money. And that's why we think it's really important, um, you know, because we, we didn't want to put any additional pressure on small business owners in Maine. We know that small business is what keeps this state afloat. Uh, but at the same time, we just needed a simple vehicle so that employees could say, yeah, I'd like to save five or $10 a month into this account and have that conservatively invested in a safe investment um, through a, a private entity that would be through a bidding process approved by the state to manage that money. And you know, the best thing is that it will also follow you around. So if you're an employee saving money, this money will follow you wherever you go from job to job. Even if you move out of state, let's say you find a great job in Florida and you move to Florida, you still have that money waiting for you. And you can choose to reinvest it someplace else. You can just, just keep it in the account and let it grow. But the bottom line is it sticks with you. It's your money. You said it was a public-private partnership. What does that mean? Good question. So the public part of this is the management, right? So the state is going to be able to say, we have this many people, employees, who are interested in having their money invested. Now, as uh, individuals, those folks might not have much value to say a big bank, right? Big banks aren't going door to door, uh, knocking on mom and pop store saying, would you like to get a 401k through us? It's not worth it for the banks to do that. But if we can pool all those folks together and suddenly collectively, there's a lot of money and a lot of people involved, a bank might say, well, now we have some interest. Now we can actually do this because the value makes sense for us. That's the private side. So the, the state plays the role of organizing it and the banks play the role of managing it. And the best part is, is that it'll all be through a bidding process to make sure that we get the best deal possible. 
and that and that uh, contract will be up for renewal. So if if we're seeing not great stuff come from the private side, the state can choose to change, um, you know, who the vendor is taking care of these investments. And do employers have to participate? So there is a mandate of employers being able to offer the option. I want to be clear: this is not a mandate that they have to, uh, you know start investing money in their employees' retirement funds. This is just the mandate to say you have to offer the opportunity to your employees, right? So if you look at the, you know, if you, a hiring document with all the different HR requests and questions for a new hire, we're just at simply adding one question, which is, would you like to be a part of this program? Now, it is an opt-out program. So folks are automatically opted in unless they choose not to. So it's still a choice. You still have the absolute choice to say, you know what? I'd rather not participate in that retirement program. I want all my money to be given to me right now. Um, but the goal here, again, is to give folks that option and make it easy for small business um, to not have to worry about managing it. And when does this program go into effect? So we're, we're right now they're in the implementation process. So, um, you know, I hate to be the uh, uh, to, to, I'm trying to think of the, the word for when you tell someone the ending uh, of a movie. Uh, so we did pass the bill, which we were very happy about. Um, and it was a very strong bipartisan uh, support on this bill, which is rare these days on bills like this. Um, and we're right now in the thick of the implementation period. So over the course of the next year, we're going to be setting up the board and the board is a series of appointments uh, and they will have really a lot of control over how this program unfolds or the details and the nitty gritty. Um, and the programs we hope will be able to be launched late next year. So we're going to start to see um, the, what they call as a soft rollout. So it's not going to just be open season for anybody and everybody. Um, they're going to start at the higher levels of um, companies with higher employee numbers. So if you have 20 or more employees, you'd be first uh, welcome to this marketplace. Um, and then, you know, within three to four months, move that down to 15 or more employees. So you're starting to scale down to smaller and smaller, small businesses as time, time goes forward. So it's a staggered implementation. And yes, correct. from what you're saying, it seems like this is not for people that are retired or about to. This is looking forward to the future. Well, it's for any working Mainer. So there, you know, it's important to, to say that. Um, and I will say this, if you're a, a small business or a business that already offers a 401k or pension, you have nothing to worry about. This is not going to impact you in any way. You're listening to 50 Plus Aging in Rural Maine on WERU-FM. I'm your host, Suzanne Carmichael, and today we're learning what the Maine legislature did this year for folks 50 and older. My guests are Japhet Ells and Bridget Quinn, Advocacy and Outreach Directors for AARP Maine. I'd like to turn to you now, uh, Bridget. I know there were some prescription drug bills in the legislature this year. And that, of course, all of us, as we get older, uh, have prescriptions we have to take, and it seems like the prices never go down. Could you share a little bit about what those drug bills were about? Yep, of course, Suzanne. Um, and as you just highlighted, um, 
that prescription drugs is, is a huge issue, especially for those who are older and maybe taking multiple medications, but it's really an issue that affects everyone. Um, we just know that there are so many families struggling to pay for their prescription drugs for either their children um, or older adults across the state who are struggling to pay. And this is a huge issue for AARP nationally. So this year in Maine, we supported a group of bills of known as the Making Healthcare Work for Maine package that were aimed at lowering prescription drug prices and making healthcare more affordable to Mainers. We know nationally, Americans are sick and tired of paying the highest prices in the world for their prescription drugs. And you do not have to go far to find somebody who has a personal story of how they have either struggled to afford a prescription medication. We, we all know the stories. We all know somebody who is struggling in some way, shape, or form, and it's not okay. So this is why AARP nationally and within Maine is really fighting to make prescription drugs more affordable. I know that this has affected me personally and my family. We know that it is affecting our members, our volunteers, and the legislature heard time and time again when considering these bills how impacted people are and the horrible choices that they are making, whether that is to pay for food, rent, heat, or their prescription drugs and doing unsafe things like cutting pills in half to make a prescription last longer when that is not what was prescribed to them at that dosage. So there were five bills in all that seek to do different things to lower prescription drug prices in Maine. So I'll go through all of them um, and I will try to be clear because I know that's a lot. Um, but so the first one I think is one that we can all relate to and easily understand, which was a bill brought forth by Senator Kathy Breen, which will create the Insulin Safety Net Program in Maine. Um, this bill will fast track insulin to those who need it at an affordable rate. It will require um, and establish a program under the Maine Board of Pharmacy that will require insulin manufacturers to make the drug more available to pharmacies to get it to those who are in an urgent need and an urgent need of supply of insulin at an affordable rate. I mean, this is something that we all know and understand. Insulin is a very important um, prescription. And so this is gonna have a huge impact. Has that gone into effect yet? And I wondered if there are rules, I, how someone would be considered eligible uh, if this is a one-time opportunity for someone or it depends on the situation or have the rules not been adopted yet? So it has not gone into effect yet. Its date um, is that the program will be established by March 1st of 2022. Um, and there are eligibility requirements for income level. And um, however, the way it works is that people can get a 30-day supply of insulin um, at a rate of $30. So that would be about a dollar a day for your insulin. So that is the rules that were adopted and there is a little bit more going on, but that is how the program will work. And I believe that you are able to use the program multiple times if needed. So nobody will hopefully be denied insulin just because they use this program once. It's um, really important. I mean, insulin Okay, is and what were, the, what were some of the other bills? Of course. So another one that did pass into law and was signed into law um, is an act to increase prescription drug transparency. This was a bill brought forward by Senator Eloise Vitelli. Um, this will allow the Maine Health Data Organization to publicly share information about price increases on prescription drugs. So really kind of giving the Maine the ability to name and shame um, if a prescription drug price 
increases and people really don't understand why. So this will give Maine the tools that we need to understand what prescriptions are going up and cost, how that's affecting Mainers and where are the prices increasing and what does that look like? So this is really about giving the state more information to take further action, but will allow us to understand what's really hurting people. Where are people feeling the most pain? Um, and so that will actually go into effect on January uh, 30th of 2022. And is there a state entity or someone that will be reviewing this and seeing what can be done about it? Or it, it, this is just setting up the information? So this is setting up the information. However, leading into our next bill, which um, actually is LD120, which was brought forth by the Senate president, that creates the Office of Affordable Healthcare in Maine. So this is a new nonpartisan independent office that will analyze healthcare costs and make recommendations to the legislature on methods to improve cost-efficient, high-quality healthcare throughout the state. Um, and so they will have the ability to look as well. And as well as part of that legislation, we do actually have in Maine the Prescription Drug Affordability Board, which is a board that um, was created by legislation back in 2017 that work to set upper price payment limits on prescription drugs in Maine. Um, the Office of Affordable Healthcare as a part of their mandates will actually provide staffing to the Prescription Drug Affordability Board. So that is complicated, I know, and I'm throwing out all these big terms, but we are really building a system to understand and then build a way for Maine to start to really rein in these high costs. And there were two other bills, I believe, that passed bipartisan, uh, but that Governor Mills did not sign, and so they did not become law. Can you just briefly say what those would have done and what was the problem? Yep. So those two bills um, included one from Senator Claxton, which was targeted at um, protecting Mainers from unsupported price increases on prescription uh, medication. So this bill would have fined prescription uh, drug manufacturers for increasing the price of a prescription drug sold in Maine without adequate evidence for a price hike. So the manufacturer would have had an option to say, this is why the prescription increased in price. Um, and if that evidence was found to be fair, that was all good. However, if not, it would have given me the power to find these pharmaceutical manufacturers for this unsupported uh, price increase and then put that money back into making uh, prescriptions more affordable in Maine. And then the other one that did not pass was an act to prevent excessive prices for prescription drugs. And this would have um, prohibit prohibited excessive prices for generic and off-patent prescription drugs sold in Maine and would have empowered Maine's attorney general to take specific action when drug manufacturers dramatically increase uh, drug prices. So it would have given the attorney general the power to fine and to investigate these uh, manufacturers for high prices. Um, there were concerns about the constitutionality of these bills. Um, that is why the governor cited not being able to support them because it would have opened Maine up to lawsuits that would have likely and pretty much guaranteed have come from pharmaceutical manufacturers and more. Um, and we have actually seen that happen across the country a bit, and that is the concern. So is AERP Maine 
interested in supporting similar bills in the future that perhaps have somewhat different wording? Do you think that's something that is, is possible? Well, we're not done working on prescription drugs actually at all. So um, on those two bills, we would absolutely have to look for the future, but we do know in our next half of the session, there is another bill from Senator Claxton that uses, it's called international price referencing. And we would essentially look at what other countries, mainly Canada, what are they paying for their prescription drugs and use that to create payment or to create what Maine should be paying for their prescription drugs because we know people in other countries are paying less. So, you know, you might hear a lot of different things about importation and such, but as um, I believe Senator Claxton even said, for this type of bill, we're looking at importing the price of the prescription because it doesn't make sense that people not that far in Canada are paying a lot less than Mainers on the same prescription drugs. So we are going to look at that in um, 2022. Wow, that's a lot of, lot of complexity. Uh, very well explained, thank you. I'd like to turn now, Jafit, to the internet, which especially those of us that live in rural Maine uh, know there are so many problems with. I believe there was a bill in the legislature this year that had something to do with Connect Me or Connect Maine. Can you explain a bit of what that was about and if it will make any difference? Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I always get nervous when people say it's time to turn to the internet because <laughs> um, I feel like that's just a whole bag of wax you don't want to get involved in. But um, I think it's important to remember that um, you know Maine has spent a ton of money um, on our transportation systems over the years through more than a dozen transportation bonds, close to a billion dollars. And we have spent next to nothing on our information superhighway, right? So we have our regular highways, but now we're all on the information superhighway. So the conversation uh, heading into this session was all about, obviously because of the pandemic, was the dramatic need to invest um, technologically into our our remote future, making sure that we can, you know, get the internet speeds that we deserve here in Maine, especially in rural Maine, where so many folks don't even have a speed to begin with. It's just about access. Uh, and AARP looks at this issue from not just the access piece, but the affordability piece. And I think anybody who is writing their checks uh, every month to uh, the cable conglomerate of their choice will speak to the fact that it seems to be only getting more expensive, not more affordable. And yet the service and the speed seems to be getting uh, slower and not as good. So one of the pieces of legislation that was started uh, at the beginning of this session um, was all about a, uh, a bond. And it was an effort to, um, to continue to move the state forward in funding uh, broadband expansion in the state of Maine. Um, well, that quickly changed. Uh, and there was a larger conversation about the need to expand the state's ability to actually uh, manage uh, the future of our broadband infrastructure. And the Connect Maine Authority, which was the state entity that was really uh, tasked with doing this, with, with bringing broadband to all of Maine, it was about two people. Two people were in charge of all of that. And so everyone looked at each other in the state house and realized that is not gonna cut it. And so this 
uh, bond uh, bill was actually tabled and carried over. So we'll probably see that this coming session um, in 2022. And instead, a new bill was initiated that essentially would give the Connect Maine Authority far more uh, abilities to support community development and expansion of broadband to make sure that we're not just serving the communities of Portland and Bangor and Augusta, but we're serving many of the communities down east, up in Aristic County and in Western Maine, which is often forgotten about. And so this new entity um, is really gonna be focused on um, taking the federal funding that is coming for broadband uh, and helping communities build out plans and then the infrastructure for broadband expansion where, wherever they are. Um, and so that was a key piece. I think, again, this is one of those boring but important elements. We didn't have the government infrastructure or administrative support to tackle this problem. And so as the problem ballooned and more and more people realized that their schools didn't have the, uh, the, the speeds they needed to get kids connected. A lot of the kids who were at home, their parents realized that they couldn't get the speeds that they needed for their child to get the education. They were sitting in Walmart parking lots for, for Wi-Fi. This problem became a huge one. And the need for upgrading how the government can begin to help expand broadband became the conversation. Um, and we were really happy to support this legislation um, we had um, several of the leaders who were working on this issue come to our um, advocate sessions and talk to volunteers about why they were um, really supporting and pushing through this piece of legislation. Um, and we sat in on the EUT committee, which is the uh, Energy Utilities and Technology Committee, which is where a lot of the broadband uh, policy is going through. We sat in on those committee hearings to make sure that Folks uh, were hearing from those who were 50 plus, um, who were saying, look, uh, I need the access to this uh, service and, and better internet speeds to be able to uh, connect to my doctors. Uh, telehealth and telemedicine uh, are reliant on a broadband connection, but I also have grandkids coming around and they would like to be able to do the homework that they have to get done and assigned um, in their school curriculums. Uh, and so many of us quickly became, you know, dependent uh, on these internet connections. And indeed, here we are, you know, uh, in a remote conversation on the radio, um, all because of broadband and the ability to do that. So we're continuing to, to focus on this. I think, again, for us, it's about access and affordability. If it's not affordable, it's not accessible. And uh, making sure that 50 plus Mainers have access to that is going to be key going forward. And I believe there's something called the Maine Broadband Coalition. And one of the things that I came across when I was doing the research for this program today is that they have an internet speed test on their website that they're trying to get people to take. Can you explain why that's important and what the information, how that will help with any of this? I'm so glad you mentioned uh, the coalition. The main broadband coalition is so important to this issue. Uh, and it's a great example of Mainers coming together to try to tackle a problem that impacts all of us. They currently are running a internet speed test that is free uh, and very important um, from their website, which is the main broadband coalition.org, O-R-G. Um, the reason this is important is it's hard for us to know, it's hard for anyone to know where to start in expanding broadband if you don't have a good map. 
right? You always need a good map if you're going to go someplace or have an idea of sort of where you are situated. Well, many Mainers don't quite know how their internet speeds fare uh, compared to their neighbors. And indeed, on some streets in certain communities, on one side of the street, the max speed is much higher than the other side of the street. Well, why is that? The mapping is one of the key aspects that anybody who's building out broadband infrastructure needs to have first. And so we didn't have a good map in Maine. In fact, most states don't. And so the Maine Broadband Coalition has been leading the charge on a crowdsourced Maine uh, built uh, internet speed map. And anyone can go to the, the coalition website, again, it's mainbroadbandcoalition.org and take the speed test. Now, the thing is, you don't just take it once, right? Your internet speeds vary over the course of a day. Often, if more people in your community are all on Zoom calls or all streaming Netflix, you might have a little bit lower speed. So the important piece of this is to take it multiple times throughout multiple days so that we can get a fair snapshot of your speed. And so if folks are interested, this is a great way for us all to band together uh, and get a better speed map for Maine so that we can better allocate the broadband funding coming down the pike. Yes, I, tr I tried that. I went to mainbroadbandcoalition.org backslash speed-test-info. And when I was done, I realized that I could look at a map and there were three different colors of dots on it. Green hmm. showed people had good internet, red, it wasn't great, and black, no internet. So that made it interesting to me to be able to see, look around my community and then the state to see where the green and red and black dots were. <clears throat> great point. And you can actually view that map uh, at any point, if you just click on the view results uh, option right below the take the test option, it'll open up um, a Google map. And that Google map is overlaid or meshed with all of the different speed tests that have come through, right? So this is anonymous, like you're not putting your name, you're not putting your social security number. This is just based on your address and where you're, where you're getting your internet. Um, and so if you view that map, you can kind of see based on the color codes of all the dots, where we need to be spending more money for broadband infrastructure. Um, and it gets really curious when you start to see red dots right next to green ones. Each of the color-coded dots shows you a certain internet speed, right? So um, in Maine, we don't have a lot of 500 megabytes per second um, download speeds, which is pretty fast. Uh, I'd say most of our speeds are between um, 25 and 50, somewhere in there. Um, and that's not fast enough. Um, part of the conversation we're also having around broadband expansion is this concept of, is our network future proof? Meaning, are we going to spend all this money, do all this work, and then in 10 years, it'll be obsolete? We know technology is moving fast. And so part of what this broadband conversation has to be about is, are we building a network that's going to serve Mainers for more than just 10 years? Thank you. You're listening to 50 Plus, Aging in Rural Maine on WERU-FM. I'm your host, Suzanne Carmichael, and today we're learning what the Maine legislature did this year for folks 50 and older. My guests are Japheth Ells and Bridget Quinn, Advocacy and Outreach Directors for AARP Maine. I'd like to turn now, Bridget, to another health area I believe there was a bill on caregivers or family caregivers. 
Could you explain a bit about that? Yeah, of course. So I wanna provide a little bit of background for everybody. Um, in Maine, we have about 181,000 family caregivers who provide about $2.2 billion back to the medical economy. They're an incredible resource for our state that allow people to maybe stay at home longer um, and really age as they wish and choose. So family caregivers are really the unsung heroes of our health industry and helping so many people and we wanna be able to support them. However, we know that caregiving is a really hard job and that a lot of people don't know about the resources that exist that are available. Um, and that can lead into some things like caregiver burnout. So to help combat this, this year, the legislature considered a bill that will bring together a stakeholder group that is going to look at um, caregiver assessment programs. These are programs that exist in other states that allow different um, services, such as um, area agencies on aging, to talk to family caregivers and to run an assessment on what they need. So these allow a caregiver who might be feeling burnt out to talk to somebody who is able to do this assessment and then figure out what services and supports they need and get them to those services and supports. The reason that this is really helpful for states is it prevents anxiety and burnout for our family caregivers. And it allows them to take better care of themselves and the loved one that they are caring for. Um, we're really excited that this work has actually started. The stakeholder group is currently meeting and our report is due back to the legislature um, in January of 2022 that will make recommendations on how to build this type of assessment program in Maine. Um, it's really important that we care for our family caregivers, which I know, but the saying is, is you really cannot pour from an empty cup. If our caregivers are burnt out and really putting everything out there, they're not going to be able to provide the care that they wish for their loved one. And it's going to really hurt the entire state. So we have wonderful partners, including the Maine Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program and the Department of Health and Human Services and many others who are now coming together to understand how these assessment programs have worked in other states and how we can build the best one for Mainers. And it's really going to help our family caregivers who are providing so much to the state and really deserve this time and attention from us. So you're trying to get an assessment program established. Mm -hmm. And once the assessment is done of a caregiver, family caregiver, are the resources there to offer them what they need or is that part of the discussion here? So there are plenty of resources available and this is something that we're talking about now um, as a group. So first, after that assessment is done, who is responsible to follow up with that caregiver and make sure that they're getting the info that they need? But for example, there are respite programs and other things through our uh, area agencies on aging that are available to family caregivers. But too often we talk to somebody who says, I never thought to go there to ask for support for my loved one who I'm trying to support at home after maybe they had a fall or another serious health issue. They just talk to their doctor and that's all that they think of. So those are the things that we're exploring. Who can be the person who identifies that that mm -hmm. assessment is needed? who is required to follow up. And the work that other states have done have really shown that this can really help 
um, and allowing somebody who may be eligible for nursing home care to stay at home longer if their caregiver is able to access those home services and support. So it helps get people to important things like home and community-based services that allow them to do a better job of caring for somebody in their home. And for AARP, we know that a lot of people want to remain in their homes for as long as possible. And a lot of people rely on a family caregiver um, or a loved one that is beyond family to really facilitate them being able to keep that independence. So that's why this is something that's really important to us so that we, as you know, as part of our mission, people can choose to age as they wish and feel empowered to do that. So is this m- more of a problem, do you think, in rural areas to, to find out h- how would people even know who the people were giving, doing caregiving? Uh, it seemed, is this a home health care issue or how, how do you reach people in rural areas? So those are actually some of the questions that we are addressing as a stakeholder group right now. So who should be the person that identifies that and says this caregiver would benefit from the assessment program? Um, so I don't have an answer of this is the person, but these are the things that we're exploring. Is it a primary care physician who sees the patient and the family caregiver coming in? Is it that you have to call the area agency on aging? Is it somebody else, somebody who's providing PT and OT in the home as a, hum- as a home and community-based service? So there are options. And in many different states, there are ways that they are using home and community-based services to facilitate this program. But those are the questions. And I would actually encourage everybody who is a family caregiver to get in touch with our office and provide your feedback because that's what we need. We need to hear from family caregivers um, right now of what they're facing and what's hardest for them. And how would they get in touch with you? So I would recommend email and they can email us at me at aarp.org. Again, that's me at aarp.org. Or we do have a phone number as well, which is 866-554-5380. And we, of course, have a website, which is aarp.org slash me. Could you just repeat the phone number again in case people went to to grab a pencil? (laughs) Of course. So that is 866-554-5380. And we only have about 15 minutes or less left. And I'd like to change... Uh, and go to a couple other issues. JFIT, AARP Maine opposed four bills that would have made voting more difficult. Can you explain the relevance of those bills to older Mainers? Sure. Yeah, there were four bills that came before the Veterans and Legal Affairs Committee, which is often where a lot of this stuff ends up. Um, These bills basically were all very similar Um, but their goal was to require a photo ID um, in order to be registered to vote in the state of Maine. Um, This is something that AARP opposes um, and we have for a very long time. And I suspect we will continue to oppose um, this sort of uh, policy going forward. And I'll tell you why. Um, These impact, these type of uh, election laws or election efforts really do minimize and hinder the ability of uh, an older resident to to vote. Um, Now, some folks may be rolling their eyes when they hear that, but let me just back that up with a few statistics. Um, 
we know that roughly 19% of people who are 70 and older do not have a driver's license. And many of them don't have a government issued ID. Uh, for many older folks in Maine, uh, whether they're our parents or grandparents uh, or our spouses, will uh, hang up the keys and stop driving. Maybe it's for uh, health reasons, maybe it's just for uh, you know, safety reasons, but they stop driving. Um, well, that 19% translates to about 31,000 people. Now, 31,000 doesn't sound like a huge number, but it's a lot. And to give it, you, to get, put that into some electoral perspective, that number is less than the number of votes that separated Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in 2016 election. We know that our elections are close. And so when we talk about possibly impacting 31,000 people's ability to get registered to vote and to participate in the process, we have to be serious about these type of policies that are being proposed. The reason that this impacts older Mainers is that being able to get a government issued ID, ID is not something that's easy. It's also something that has been required in person. So you have to be able to get in your car, get yourself to an appointment, to get yourself this ID. Or maybe you know somebody, a neighbor or a friend to help you get there. At no point does someone from your town clerk's office or someone from your local uh, BMV come to you and help you get your ID, right? So until that happens, you know, maybe we can have a different conversation. But right now, the way that we make government issued IDs accessible for all residents, uh, it makes it very difficult to require those IDs in order to participate in the process. And many older Mainers would be, would be walled off uh, from being able to participate easily. Not only that, many more might just choose not to. And at the end of the day, these policies really are gonna limit or uh, distract people or dissuade people from participating in the democratic process and casting their vote. And we think that at the, at the end of the day, we should be looking for ways to encourage people to get out there and vote, no matter what their ability, no matter what their transportation situation, or no matter what their health situation. And so we were very proud to oppose these laws and think that we should, the conversation right now should be about how to make voting more accessible for older Mainers, not less. And could you briefly say how it could be made more accessible? Well, I think the pandemic has put this front and center. I think a lot of older Mainers have uh, found out the ease of using absentee voting system to participate. I know I have been using absentee ballots for a number of years. I love voting for my kitchen table. I think it's great. Uh, I can make a good dinner, make a, a, have a nice glass of wine and enjoy uh, filling out my ballot uh, and putting that in the mail and trusting that it will get to where it needs to be. Um, drop boxes, ballot drop boxes and more urban areas have also been very um, successful over the last two elections that we've held in this, in this state, uh, both primary and general. Um, and I think you're seeing a lot of town clerks suddenly looking for ways to um, meet the needs or requests from their citizens about how to make um, voting more accessible and not necessarily only about voting in person at a prescribed time and place. Uh, in your community. That, that should always be available. Just to be clear, we will continue to advocate for folks to be able to vote in person safely and securely. 
but there's no harm in being able to create other options for folks who might not have the same abilities or health situation that you and I have. And Bridget, turning to a totally different issue, I understand there was a bill that had something to do with vulnerable road users and that it was almost defeated and then it now is law. Could you tell us a little bit about that and why AARP was involved? Yes, of course. Um, so just so everybody knows, when we say a vulnerable road user, we're kind of using an, a, a term that, an umbrella term that can identify bicyclists, pedestrians, people who are not in a car on the road. Um, so this falls under AARP's livable communities work. And we know that policies for way too long have focused on just cars. So when we look at policy, we wanna make sure that it also includes different ways for people to get around. As JFIT just said, not everybody drives as their primary way of getting to point A to point B. So our roads and need to be safe for everybody to use. If you're using a car, if you're using a bike, or if you're walking um, and they need to be designed well. So the reason for this bill was that too often there would be accidents involving a vulnerable road user and nothing would happen. Um, there wouldn't be a ticket issued. Nothing would really happen to help that person who had been likely struck by a vehicle and there were really no repercussions. So that doesn't really make our drivers safer when considering who else might be using our roads. Um, so this bill was uh, championed by an AARP volunteer actually. And as Suzanne mentioned, it received a divided report out of committee. And then just based on some wonderful grassroots and really wonderful work by the Bike Ped uh, Coalition of Maine and um, AARP volunteer, this eventually passed into law. Um, just kind of saying, no, this is important. Our pedestrians and bicyclists need to be safe on these on the roads. And this, this um, bill will require that when an accident happens with a vulnerable road user, that that is automatically sent to a local um, attorney and that they have to have a district attorney. They have to investigate and to see if there is something to be done. So this will hopefully hold a higher standard of repercussions for our drivers when using when driving to make sure that they are being aware of bicyclists and pedestrians and driving in a safe manner for everybody to use our roadways. Um, so I would just say this is a wonderful example of just the power of Mainers being able to get involved in policy directly and to say, no, this is something that is important to us. This is something that we wanna see passed into law and really rallying around that and having a positive impact for Mainers everywhere. So good stuff. We're almost out of time. I want to just toss out a quick question to both of you or either of you. In the upcoming legislative session that begins in January, what bills or what issues just in general do you think AARP will be working on? Jafet? Well, we're going to continue to work on some of the issues that we have been whittling away at. Um, you know, our issues are always on the table. Um, whether it's prescription drug reform, financial security, more livable communities, um, general health care. These are all issues that are not going anywhere. And there will always be another effort to make that policy or those policies that much better for working Mainers. Um, and I think one of the things that we'd you know, like to see is a continued effort to push forward on broadband. 
uh, and making sure that that's affordable and accessible. Uh, also being aware that there needs to be some technology conversations to close the digital divide that currently separates many older Mainers from the rest of us. Um, and includes something as simple as, as training, but also access to these tools, whether it's a, a tablet or a computer or even a smartphone. Um, that conversation is going to be ongoing for many years. And I would say for broadband especially, this is not going to be solved with one giant fell swoop of federal dollars hitting all of our communities. This is going to be a technological investment for years to come. These are investments that just like our roads and highways are going to need regular upkeep uh, and attention and uh, need to be uh, really addressed from a legislative standpoint uh, if we want to see a real traction going down the road. And before we end, uh, Bridget, if you could once again tell folks if they're interested in finding out more about any of these issues, uh, how do they get in touch with you folks? Of course. So we are available at, um, on email at me at aarp.org. Phone, our phone number is 866-554-5380. And of course, we have a website, aarp.org slash ME, where you can learn about everything that we talked about today. Okay. Thank you both so much for this interesting discussion. You've been listening to 50 Plus Aging in Rural Maine, a project of AARP Maine in cooperation with WERU-FM. My guests today were Japhet Ells and Bridget Quinn. This show is archived at WERU.org, and you can subscribe to podcasts there as well, so you never have to miss a show. If you'd like to contact me with questions, comments, or to suggest topics for this show, please send an email to news at weru.org and put 50 plus in the subject line so it will reach me. And if you'd like to read my new bi-monthly blog, Aging Fearlessly, you can find it at aarp.org backslash me. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>